Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel. Each week, we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. Uh, This week, I'm happy to say that we have Michael Pettit on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Science of Deception, Psychology and Commerce in America. Michael, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm I'm an associate professor at York University in Toronto. Um, I started off, my PhD training was in history. I did my PhD at at the University of Toronto, uh, studying American cultural history and the history of science and medicine. Um, And as this this book is sort of my dissertation book and it dealt with the history of psychology. And after I finished my PhD, I had the good fortune of getting hired by York University, which is also in Toronto, but further to the north um, by the psychology department. So I I always say I, I didn't go very far um, geographically, but I went very far um, in terms of discipline. The reason I'm in psychology is because York has a ra- rather idiosyncratic graduate program um, in the history and theory of psychology. So there are four of us that teach the history and theory of psychology to um, psychology graduate students and undergraduate students, sort of the history and philosophy of their discipline, as well as training uh, students particularly in um, history and theory of psychology. Hmm. That is interesting. I, d- I don't know any other place that does that. I approve. <laughs> there are there are uh, two or three of us in the world that, that do this kind of program. There's a bit more theoretical much. psychology, but in terms of history of psychology, there's only one or two other programs that are in, housed in sort of the, the discipline of psychology. That's interesting. So could you tell us why you wrote The Science of Deception? Sure. So as I said a, a minute ago, it began as my dissertation at the University of Toronto. And, um, you know, the, the book has had sort of a number of lives. It, it sort of began originally in a seminar on History of American Visual Culture. Um, we had been reading a lot about P.T. Barnum as kind of this iconic um, 19th century American entrepreneur and his sort of visual style of entertainment. And I was kind of, I originally got interested in this idea of, you know, what was the sort of the role of scientific authority in the kinds of hoaxes and frauds um, that Barnum perpetuated. Uh, as I got into the project, the project kind of shifted quite quickly, uh, more into this idea of a more kind of perceptual or emotional history of deception. So it moved away from sort of the history of, of, of these hoaxes in particular to more, you know, how are people kind of studying uh, the subjects of these kinds of hoaxes? And so, uh, so it shifted from sort of a cultural history of science more to, slightly to more of a disciplinary history focused increasingly on psychology as a science of subjectivity, science of perception, science of emotion. Mm-hmm. And the, and then the problem that you deal with is, of course, a, a kind of a universal one, or I would even call it a generic one in any culture that has a market. That is, there's a buyer and a seller, and they have to meet minds. Uh, and if that meeting of minds is not uh, quite uh, correctly aligned, then uh, there's something funny about the contract. There's something funny about the engagement or transaction. And, uh, you know, to, at one end of the extreme is obviously the con man and the mark. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, Right. 
Absolutely. So, you know, the, the book begins with sort of, you know, the coining of the concept of the con man in 1840s America, uh, again, linked to his idea of P.T. Barnum's humbugs and hoaxes, and then how discussions of being tricked move from kind of the marketplace and kind of, you know, and from the popular press to a kind of a discipline that kind of claimed authority over, you know, why people are air, why people are biased, why people are self-deceiving. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an interesting question. So uh, let's begin just, uh, the, the book moves chronologically, so let's begin at the very beginning, and that is uh, with the, 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 the discourse in the United States, or the discussion um, of, um, of, of deception, broadly conceived, but hoaxes of various kinds. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Sounds good. So, so the, the book sort of begins, uh, for history, for, as I said, it began it, 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 as a history dissertation. And so I want to start outside of sort of the narrow discipline of psychology. And the idea was that um, even when we don't kind of have recognized scientific experts, we have a kind of self-talk about psychology that's out there. And I kind of want to unpack that. First of all, and so where I kind of looked for psychology initially was in, you know, advice manuals, um, in expose literature. And, you know, there's sort of a large American historical literature on the history of the con man as kind of this iconic 19th century figure. And, uh, you know, and oftentimes these narratives, you know, starting in the 1840s, all about how these are these, you know, these country rubes who come to the city and are kind of taken in by the, the spectacular city and are naive. And what I sort of found when I was reading sort of the congressman literature over the 19th century is that there's, there's a shift um, from Richardson's idea that, uh, you know, it's innocent roots that are sort of being taken advantage of to, especially starting in the 1870s, 1880s, that the reason that people are deceived is because they themselves have sort of these dark passions that are leading them into temptation. And so this, is, this, is, this, this kind of intensifies that, you know, um, that, most likely the victim of a confidence game was someone that was likely trying to take advantage of someone else. And so you, and you have sort of the, you have the design of, of a whole bunch of different confidence games, uh, you know, of, of different counterfeiting schemes, uh, of different mining schemes that all kind of prey on, you know, uh, you think you're taking, the comment says, you're, you, you think you're going to take advantage of me. And, you know, that's how I'm going to get your trust. But in fact, all along, I'm the one that's best in you. And that's why we're, that's why we kind of fall into these schemes. Mm-hmm. You know, and this certainly also affects how people talked about, you know, stock market and commercial contracts. And so this idea is that, you know, people, you know, when they entered into kind of commercial contracts and they were in the market, they didn't come with clean hands that, you know, we, we, they, they presuppose through these dark hidden vices. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's a little bit like the way people talked about gambling. Absolutely. So, you know, like, you know, the, you know, there's a blurry line between sort of the, you know, the advice literature on, um, you know, Temperance, gambling, yeah. spending your money, investment in it, and I think you know, I think a lot of history, of, recent history of American capitalism has sort of shown the blurry line between the history of gambling and history of you know speculation and finance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that uh, the term confidence man was coined in the 1840s. Did you say? Yeah. Could you tell us the origin of that phrase? Well, so basically, it, it's it, it came out of New York City and kind of the of this particular crime, and. Um, uh, and, and, and the idea was, uh, uh, it was this criminal that would sort of approach you and he'd sort of say, um, do you trust your fellow man? And you kind of come well-to-do, um, uh, well-dressed. His name was William Thompson. And um, he, would, uh, he would present um, you with, say, you know, an, an investment scheme and um, 
you know, would you give me, would you give me um, money for it? And here's sort of watch the collateral. And you sort of trust him and, and see the watch. And then you turn out that, in fact, um, he wouldn't sort of show up to return your watch with the investment. So it, it, it was originally kind of comes out of this um, sort of urban encounter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it is a sort of, I, there's another way to think about it, and that is an extraordinarily high-pressure sales ta- tactic that ends up fraudulent on the other end. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of, you know, part of the book is, you know, especially for these 19th century moralists, this attempt to kind of, how do we kind of tease apart, you know, advertising, salesmanship, speculation, gambling, and in some ways they kind of want to keep these different kind of commercial activities distinct yep. right? and, and, in, in different yeah. channels. Yeah, I mean, and in some said, ways, in, in terms of their practices, they kind of keep on slipping into one each other. And, and that's sort of one of the, the big tensions in, in sort of the advice literature is how do we um, keep these things separate? And so, you know, oftentimes this advice literature is often, you know, written by, uh, you know, former con men who had very elaborate careers. And, yeah, there was, there was a blurry line between kind of their confidence games, you know, the selling of, 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 of tonic medicines, uh, traveling salesmen, you know, these kinds of things. And so it is, it's, it's attempt to kind of, kind of police these lines that don't seem sustainable. Mm-hmm. And what I was going to say, I was sorry for, for trying to interrupt there, but as you point out, this is of some relevance today, especially in terms of the, um, of the, the this mortgage debacle. Uh, Absolutely. These, no. You know, cause some people will say, you know, well, uh, they got just what they deserve. They, they, they signed up for mortgages that they couldn't, um, that they, they couldn't pay off. And so, well, that's the way the market works and they bought it. And then other people will say, well, you know, uh, they were actually sold something that, that the sellers themselves knew that they could not, um, that they could not, uh, uh, sustain the mortgage, but they were getting commissions that is cash up front. So they did it anyway. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. You know, uh, as a historian, um, I feel most comfortable in the past, right? So the book ends in the 1930s. But, you know, this book was sort of written between 2001 and 2011. You know, and so as I was kind of, especially as I was kind of revising the book, um, you know, the mortgage crisis, you know, the financial crisis happened. And although I don't, I don't, I, you know, I, did, I don't take it up to the present or deal with that, that crisis directly. Um, I think as someone kind of was living through it, its imprint <laughs> certainly marks my analysis. You know, my thinking is definitely, you know, in the present, even though I'm looking at the past. And I think that's true of a lot of historical writing is that, you know, our, our contemporary situation lets us see certain questions, see, see certain opportunities. And um, I definitely see this book as sort of a book of the 2000s in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is an interesting psychological moment as well, because you well, one does kind of wonder why you would, why you would, buy something that you knew you couldn't pay for. Um, then there's also this moral moment, you know, again, why should, why would you buy something you knew you couldn't pay for? Uh, so, so, but these are, these, these, these difficulties are more or less systemic with any sort of market economy. They're, they're just everywhere all the time. Uh, it's just that in certain moments they really become important as in the mortgage crisis. But anyway, let's get back to the, the, the book. Uh, so uh, we talked about swindlers and, uh, and con men and people that, uh, um, that pull off hoaxes. Uh, when was the study of these people first brought into academia? When was it thought a proper thing to study, um, I guess, buying and selling or con men and their marks? Ah, the argument in the book is that it, it, it's, it's very much from the beginning of uh, the recognized social sciences. You know, So the social sciences become sort of a feature of the American Academy. The book is largely focused in the United States with some 
international comparisons. And, you know, you start seeing the discipline of psychology um, getting institutionalized in the United States. So starting in the 1880s, uh, it's what they call the new psychology. And what they mean by that is that it's an experimental science rather than a more sort of philosophical um, armchair science. And part of what the book says is uh, um, that, you know, when you look at sort of the earliest um, publications of these psychologists, um, the work on perceptual illusions are, are really early. And where, where it manifests itself most for psychologists, um, the particular con men, or in this case con women, that they're most intrigued by has to do um, with various spiritualists and psychical researchers. And the reason for this is that this is very much part of the boundary work that goes into defining um, what is psychology. So if you were to ask an American, in an educated American in the, you know, the 1880s, what is psychology? They were as likely to say it had something to do with table lifting, um, communication with the dead, these secondary personalities. And most American psychologists, with a few notable exceptions, are deeply um, skeptical of, uh, of, this, of, the, of this cultural movement. Um, which is, you know, and it's largely male psychologists and female spiritualists, and discussed by a number of people. And part of what they have to do is sort of define themselves as kind of legitimate science is engaging exposés. Mm-hmm. And so, so for this reason, kind of this, this exposing sort of the trickery of the marketplace, and like I said, and this kind of thing gets particularly embodied in the body of the spiritualist, is a really important part of how psychology comes to define itself in the 1880s, 1890s. Yeah. I mean, and it's important to recognize that there was an actual discipline that stood right alongside the experimental psychology, which was born in, in Germany, really. I think it's Wilhelm Wundt that does it. Uh, and, and that was what you, you could study at Johns Hopkins and so on and so forth. And that was parapsychology. And it was actually called parapsychology, which was, you know, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to what extent, you know, so the very first psychological experiment that's published in the United States, which is, Conducted by Charles Sanders Peirce, the famous yeah. semiotician yeah. and um, uh, and and um, pragmatist, and his student Joseph Jastrow, is on um, the subliminal sense, right? So you know what is kind of just below the threshold of perception, right? And they sort of, in, in the conclusion of that article, say, you know, this might explain, you know, the subliminal sense might explain, you know, women's intuition. Mm-hmm. It might explain some of these phenomena that are take, that are that are taking off. So actually, so so at this, and if you look at the early um, uh, membership of you know the American Society for Psychical um, Research, it's almost all populated by the very founders of American psychology. You know, and, and it's, you know, it, like it, William James, is it William James? Doesn't he? Is he making an appearance there? So William James is, is and as I said, most of them are deeply skeptical of, of psychical research. William James is by far the most sympathetic. William James um, is the one that really thinks there's something going on. Um, the psychical research that something you know that, that there's a there's a debate on of what's going on there whether it's fraud whether it's you know what we might now call um, you know multiple personality you know or is it kind of communication with the dead James thinks there's something going on there and, he, and so James is sort of you know the grand figure of American psychologists at this time period he in 1890 he writes this book Principles of Psychology um, which is a deeply foundational book and one of the most widely used textbooks for several decades, but James is always, you know, it's always an odd figure, right? So, it's, so in some ways he's highly respected, but, you know, he himself um, 
like a lot of popular psychology, quickly leaves the laboratory. He's not much of a laboratory scientist. And he thinks that we can study psychology just as well by, you know, taking, um, you know, by doing these, doing psychological research, by um, surveying people on their um, odd experiences. So, you know, we, so, so in the 1890s, um, psych researchers do these surveys of, you know, you know, have you ever heard voices? Um, you know, have you ever seen, you know, a ghost? And they're trying to, collect, you know, collect this data. So I think part of what the book is also trying to do is thinking about, you know, psychology, especially within the discipline itself, really defines itself by its experimental method. You know, as you said, psychology is born in 1879 when Wilhelm Wundt sets up the first laboratory at Leipzig, and that's when we have psychology. If you read any psychology textbook, that's what they tell you. Yeah, that is what they tell you. That's, why, that's what I know. <laughs> and part of what I'm trying to try book is, is kind of the plurality of it, right? So, so that, in fact, you know, that, you know, but if you actually look at psychology today, there's all kinds of survey work that's done, right? Questionnaires. So there's all kinds of different ways of knowing that psychology uses. And I think, you know, and, and, and part of it, so you have to sort of think about how things like, um, you know, psycho research and these kinds of surveys, these case studies, of, of abnormal behavior was just as foundational to the new psychology as kind of the experimental um, uh, reports, which, you know, um, haven't aged as, you know, uh, you know, oftentimes you, you hear these founding figures, and you're sort of like, so what were they actually about? You know, what were they actually, you know, what was, what was kind of their theory? And it's not entirely clear a hundred years later, you know, what it was. It was, it was as much kind of an attitude and a, and, and, a, and a practice as it was kind of, you know, a theory or a particular discovery. Mm-hmm. So then uh, the people in the Wundt category were attempting to discredit the people in the William James category and therefore uh, maintain a boundary or establish a boundary, I guess. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, I, you know, the most prominent kind of debunkers are uh, this uh, one psychologist who uh, I think this book probably deals with more than anyone else. This guy, Joseph Jastrow. Um, and he, he's sort of the first person to get a PhD in psychology in the United States. Um, he's at the University of Wisconsin for most of his career. But he spends most of his time kind of writing popular science books. And the other person that um, is uh, particularly prevalent in this is a, is, is a German, Hugo Munsterberg, who is one of Wundt's um, chief students. William James meets him. He thinks he's really great. He brings him to Harvard. Uh, within a year or two at Harvard, they realize they can't stand one another. <laughs> um, and and um, it often happens in the early history of psychology. Yep. There's, you know, it's a lot of personalities that don't tend to get along. And um, and then um, and so and both you know Jastrow and Munsterberg, as well as G. Stanley Hall, who I, you know, was another one of the big founders organizers of early American psychology, they they, they all kind of get involved in a very you know skepticism is the way in, right? So part of how you define yourself as a, as a good psychologist for them is to like adhere to unbelief, right? Unbelief is kind of your, your criteria, and you know the, these 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 exposés um, got a fair bit of. Um, Press. You know, these here they're publishing in places like Harper's and the New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly. Yeah. So this was, you know, th- their exploits were very much part of the middle brow print culture of the turn of the century. So we think of kind of the birth of kind of this mass culture and print culture. Um, these psychologists were not kind of, you know, writing very technical, esoteric things on to themselves, but really they're writing um, in very everyday um, accessible venues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, and I think it also bears mentioning, I can't be very specific here, it's in the book, but uh, that these, what we would think of as mm, sort of pen and Teller-like tricks uh, were uh, very popular in this era and were very much believed to 
access in some way some paranormal realm. There were a lot of people that believed these things. Absolutely. So, you know, this is kind of a golden age of vaudeville, right? Yeah. So, we're, we're, you know, this is 1890, so this is just before the birth of cinema. So, this is kind of the great era of, of the live stage. And certainly, magicians were some of the greatest performers of this era. And, you know, I said Joseph Jastro hardly ran any experiments after he got his PhD. He almost, almost exclusively wrote um, popular science books. But one of the few experiments that he ran um, featured two of the country's most prominent stage magicians. He, you know, they're kind of doing this tour of the American West. They go through Madison, Wisconsin, and he invites them into his laboratory to sort of see, you know, what allows these stage magicians to do their tricks. You know, are, you know, do they have any kind of perceptual abilities that are superior to the ordinary person? Do they have reflexes that are superior than the ordinary person? And so, and, and this inviting of, you know, these magicians into, into the laboratory was actually a fairly common practice internationally. Alfred Binet, who's probably most famous for his intelligence test, he's one kind of, he develops what eventually becomes the IQ test in France. Um, he also conducts a series of experiments with um, the, most, the, the leading magicians of the day. And so that's one thing. So there's these experiments on these magicians. But also, you know, Joseph Jasper, when he writes about um, his exposés. He sort of says, um, he switches. Initially he says, if we're going to study parapsychology, we need to bring it up to the same kind of standard as any other kind of scientific investigation. You know, and that, and, and we have to kind of bring it into the scrutiny of the laboratory. And that's, an, and that, and that's a very common line that he espoused in the 18, 1880s and other people do. Mm-hmm. By 1900, he says, that's the wrong attitude. The problem with science is that it makes us too trusting. If you're a scientist, you kind of assume nature is going to kind of, uh, it, you know, it needs to be manipulated. It needs to, you know, in a kind of a Baconian way. But nature does not intentionally deceive. People do. Mm-hmm. And so we can need a different kind of style, different kind of techniques to study people than we do to study other kinds of nature. He says, you know, so the psychologist needs to look to two different kind of models of of knowing. So it's not just to other scientists that we have to look at. He says just two figures. One is stage magician, right? The person, you know, stage, stage magicians are really good at kind of state of uh, putting on kind of uh, a, a performance, right? Misdirecting you in, in that sense. And the other person um, that we can model ourselves on is kind of the detective who kind of in an amoral way goes after the truth and isn't sort of afraid to kind of rough up a suspect to kind of get his answer. And so the state position is both kind of an object of study for these psychologists, but they also think there's ways, that, there's lessons they can learn from stage magic about the designing of their experiments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, at, at what at, at what point do they, I think you say this in the book, at what point do they decide that there is, there is the thing, one of the things that needs to be investigated is in fact gullibility? And that, that, that these, because they, they have already decided that uh, these, uh, so-called paranormal um, um, activities are fraudulent. The question then becomes, why do people believe in them? Absolutely. I, I think that's pretty, you know, so it's pretty early on. So, but, you know, but Jastrow's first book in 1890, or sorry, uh, 1900, is, you know, fact and fable in psychology. Um, and for him, you know, to sort of understand kind of the credulity of things in like in spiritualism, in you know, animal magnetism, in various phenomena, we have to sort of understand um, why people are gullible. Now, 
in some ways, this is psychology, but in some ways, you know, that's not a very empirical book. It's a book of very colorful essays. Um, and so, um, you know, so in that sense, I wouldn't say it's sort of an empirical project for them. And I think it, it doesn't, and it's not an empirical project for, for a long time. So, you know, this is also the great era, especially in Europe, of crowd psychology. And and for another thing, these crowd psychologists, which I think is, is resonating with some of this, this work, um, you know, you don't need to prove that the masses are gullible. You know that. That is, you know, <laughs> this, this, this is the default assumption, right? This, you know, this is, um, so then you have, so, and kind of assuming gullibility then allows you to kind of look at the mechanism of the actual trick itself. We can kind of explain the trick itself through, you know, through perception. But that people are kind of um, masses that are likely to be manipulated. Um, like I said, it's kind of a common assumption of, of, of these fairly elite, highly educated men. And if anything, you know, these suppositions only intensified during World War One, right? So, so part of this, you know, where this kind of goes, this sort of psychology of deception, is it gets taken up in sort of theories of propaganda, um, in in um, during the First World War. You know, people are kind of moved by nationalism in mass media. Um, so you think of the origins of Walter Lippmann, and it really is only in you know the 1930s and 1940s with the rise of people like Paul Lazarsfeld and different kinds of uh, communication research that we actually start making kind of how people read media, uh, kind of an object of study rather than kind of assuming kind of this more hyperdermic needle model of, of consumption where, you know, we know they're gullible. So it's really, you know, I'd say for the first half of the 20th century, gullibility is the assumption, not kind of the plan of research. Mm -hmm. So then, then in creating this boundary, what the psychologists, that is the empirical psychologists, if we can call them that, uh, do is they, 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 they debunk, uh, these, these claims to paranormal activity, uh, and, and, and they more or less don't study, but they assume that people are gullible. And so the focus is on the techniques. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and some people, you know, and some people are in and some people are out. Right, so one one woman that particularly irritates them is this Italian washerwoman, uh, Palladino, who kind of does these various tours of various um, uh, researchers, and and there's all kinds of issues here. You know, this is a it's a woman; she's working class. You know, this is this is in the, in the first decade of the 20th century when forms of nativism were pretty high in America, and so you have kind of this Southern European working class woman washerwoman. You have these, you know, Columbia professors, these Harvard professors saying, you know, we shall smash her on American shores. You know, we're not going to let her get away. You know, the Europeans may have, you know, believed some of her stuff, but, you know, we, you know, good Americans are, are, are going to do it. And, and, you know, and so they say to this, this you know, this, these um, performances in New York City, uh, you know, where to, to defeat her, you know, they themselves have to undergo trickery. And, and, and so what, what they do is uh, they bring her into New York City and, and she says, you know, here's the device. We're going to see if you, you know, we're going to measure you and see if you can sort of generate this spiritual electrical charge on this electroscope. And they give her this big device at the center of the table. So this is, you know, this is a seance table. So you have her at the head, you have the people surrounding her. And say, okay, focus on this. But the whole device is a complete 
screw itself. The whole point of getting her to focus on the device is to sort of distract her enough so that two of their confederates can sort of sneak into the room, dress entirely in black, and hide under the table. And that's where the real knowledge is going to happen. And and so it and, and people sort of say it's like you know it, it, people like William James sort of raises issue like so you know what's going on here like what does she reduce us to the the men of science this is kind of you know this language that kind of used rather than scientists you know what does it mean that you know Palladino's reduced the men of science to like playing parlor tricks to hide under the table you know like hasn't she debased this hasn't she kind of won if this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a related, I don't know if it's a related question or not, but it seems to me that what these psychologists were doing is that they were taking the magic out of the world. There's a famous, uh, there's a famous word in Zauberum, which Max Weber uses about this. Um, what were the implications of this? Did people comment on this? And I'm thinking particularly of religious people, because if you can show that, uh, there are lots of ways to trick people, um, then it's not a, a very far step to say that much of what we think of as miracles are all deception as well. Absolutely. So I think this is a theme, you know, I didn't quite, you know, work out as well as I'd have liked in the book. But I do think that sort of the history of culture of deception and culture of tricks, I think is an important part of the history of, you know, un and disbelief, you know, sort of the, you know, the rise of kind of free thought, the rise of atheism. And, you know, um, the psychologists I mentioned have various um, religious backgrounds. Um, Jastro and Munsterberg um, were born Jewish. Um, most of them are kind of American Protestants. Uh, but, you know, for most of them, they become fairly a-religious. So I think you're absolutely right that, that, that for them, you know, this disenchantment of the world isn't kind of an accident, but what they're up to, right? So you're absolutely right that, that part of the trying to show is that what you think is kind of wondrous and awe-filled it's explainable yeah. and mundane. Yeah. And we are going to kind of be the experts in this new century, the 20th century, that can kind of explain and guide you right. rather than kind of forms of religious authority. Right. Ignore the man behind the curtain. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, at one point, Frank Baum, you know, who was, who was, you know, someone who stopped, designed window displays originally, was very much part of, you know, using kind of aesthetics and, and aesthetic design, um, I think is also part of the story, right? You know, so I think it's, it, it, and it's two things. So there's, so there's, as I think, forms of consumer culture through things like cinema, the rise of the department store, architects are creating these new kinds of cathedrals of wonder and amazement. That goes hand in hand with kind of this project of we need to inculcate forms of disbelief and dispassion as what's kind of going to help us navigate it. So mm-hmm. I, think you know, I think there's a dialectic there between kind of these new forms of kind of awe and wonder and this kind of new forms of debunking. Mm-hmm. This is really a history of kind of the debunking sensibility, the yeah. passion for expose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, in chapter four of the book, if I, I think it's chapter four, you segue into a discussion, it's kind of a legal discussion, a discussion of the way in which this research impacts the law. And, and I think the central notion there is that the unwary purchaser. This is somebody who is essentially defrauded and, and these psychologists are brought into a legal discussion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So part of what I was trying to do here, like with the earlier part in the book, you know, of kind of trying to find the way that the advice literature was talking about a kind of psychology, I was interested in how 
legal experts also kind of think about the self and kind of mobilize an idea about personhood, um, individual agency, action when you're making legal decisions, when you're making law. So part of what I was thinking about, so when we look at the law regulating um, fraud, trademark infringement, deceptive advertising, what ideas about, you know, human nature, human psychology, that legal thinkers have built into it? And when I started the project, I knew I wanted to talk about that. And as it, I got kind of lucky when I was kind of in the archives, I, I found records not only of uh, when I was in Hugo Munzberg's papers in particular, um, that he in fact had acted as an expert witness in some of these kinds of cases. So it wasn't sort of me hoping that there would be uh, a connection. There was actually a historical connection. I think obviously for historians, you know, if we don't have to, you know, if we don't have to assert it, but we can kind of prove it, um, that's always a good moment. So, you know, in most American commercial law and most American contract law, the assumption is um, a reasonable person. Right? The idea is, in, in most cases, um, you have to take responsibility for your actions. This is kind of central to, you know, the liberal rule of law. Um, and cases of trademark infringement were different, and, and different in a really particular way. And if you read these cases, it's, it's, it's really odd. So in the 1880s, 1890s, you have judges in making these decisions saying, you know, the ordinary purchasers of their language has the right to be careless. Right to be careless. That's kind of a weird thing from the rule. <laughs> you know, uh, they said, you know, the ordinary purchaser is likely to make a decision in a moment. And so they had this, this you know, so that's the idea that, you know, um, that, that people, when they're buying things, act quickly. They don't pay that, that much attention. And you can sort of see, see this in, in the context of trademark infringement. So if you think of kind of a well-known brand that you've kind of been used to seeing time and time again, I'll use one that's historically accurate, Coca-Cola, right? You, and you sort of associate, you know, Coca-Cola with that red light, with that red packaging, the white swirl, that kind of lettering. When people use other kinds of cola names, even, you know, how much attention are you paying? And so what American judges were doing in the 1880s, 1890s was saying, we have to assume that people are careless, right? And what this will allow us to do is, if we assume people are careless, and um, are unwary. That is to the benefit of established brands like Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. right? The idea is, um, if the presumption is people are careless, then we need to be strong in policing these new challengers. And part of where this comes up as well is Coca-Cola is one common example, but also um, the fight between butter and margarine. You know, I think it's hard for us to think about this in, you know, 21st century, but you know, margarine caused all kinds of consternation in the in in, in um, the 19th in the 19th century as this kind of the substitute for butter. Um, there's all kinds of debates of how margarine should be colored. You know, there's debates whether margarine should be colored pink so that there's no way you can confuse it um, with butter. And obviously, there's this is not sort of uh, an ordinary debate, um, but you know, it's being driven by you know. The dairy industry is a huge industry in 19th century America, right? Agricultural industry. 
And so initially, when Marshall gets introduced to the United States in the 1880s, the argument is that, you know, it's bad for your health. This is something that's been, you know, produced by animal fat. It's, you know, it, it's a dangerous substance. And that kind of legal regulation of margarine doesn't hold for very long. So instead, what kind of happens instead, they say, is the reason we need to regulate margarine is because of deception. People will accidentally buy margarine when they think they when they think they're getting butter. And so that's another sort of instance where, you know, if we presume that people are going to are, are error prone, gullible, acting quickly, then that justifies a kind of a, a more intense regulation of commercial goods, which is, like I said, again, along with this idea of assumption of carelessness, it's like odd for kind of late 19th century American um, commercial law, where we kind of assume, where we, we tend to assume that it's a more hands-off, laissez-faire, you know, you get what you get type mentality. Mm-hmm. But here, so, it was, so for me, it's kind of interesting legal moment, as well as a history of psychology moment of, you know, why around the kind of these forms of consumption? It tends to be around the consumption of small household goods, soap, drink, medicine, food, around those kinds of commercial objects, there's a pretty intense um, debate about kind of the psychology of consumption. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if I recall correctly, I don't know if this is, you can tell me, that when uh, margarine was first marketed, this is in my mom's day, she told me this, I think it was my mom, maybe my grandma, that um, margarine was white and it used to come with a yellow pack of dye. Absolutely. <laughs> you had to mix them up. <laughs> and, that is, and, and, that's, and that was the legal compromise, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, if you coat it yellow yeah. in the store, you know, and, and again, so I, when I'm saying, when I say that, you know, gullibility was the assumption, you know, and this is the question, you know, like, did the did judges actually have good evidence that people were actually deceived by these products? And the answer is no. Right, this is a, it's a psychology, but it's a it's a presumed, it's an asserted psychology, not one that's kind of based on you know. Well, you know, here we have twenty witnesses saying that you know they were tricked. That's not particularly interesting to these um, uh, uh, to, to the to, to these um, judges and lawyers. Mm-hmm. Didn't these psychologists themselves have something to say about this? I mean, did you mention? Something? Didn't the psychologists themselves have something to say about the the degree to which people were gullible, or at the point that's- at which they would be deceived? Absolutely. So that, and, and so, you know, during the progressive era, and you think of the, you know, the American progressive era, there's a whole bunch of attempts to kind of move from kind of a more kind of legal formalism to kind of a, a law that's informed by social science, right? So, you know, you know, if we're going to study, if we're going to regulate workers' working hours, we want evidence about from, from medicine or their fatigue, these kinds of things. This, this is kind of a very big progressive thing. And similarly, around the law of trademark, you have trademark lawyers saying, okay, Maybe we can make this empirical, you know. Maybe we can create design psychology experiments for the likelihood that different kind of brand names are going to are, are likely to trick. And, and and what they would do is they kind of get a collection of maybe ten or twenty different brands or images or names, and they'd pair them with something similar, and they would give them to a, a group of people to then see which ones you know, sort of flash at them at them for like five seconds they could identify and within that within that group they would include the brand that was up for lit- litigation mm-hmm. the idea is they'd say okay we don't have to presume gullibility but we can show empirically where on the scale of different um, confusing names the one at stake uh, is and when, when this evidence gets, gets introduced into 
um, the courts in, in, in the 19-teens, the judges sort of say, we don't think it's wrong, but we don't think it's relevant. We are not going to secede our authority to kind of interpret people's minds to this new form of psychological expertise. Mm-hmm. And you know, people have written about the history of kind of science and the law. And, you know, there's been a fairly big openness um, within the law to different kinds of expertise. You know, we think of all kinds of friends' expertise around, you know, chemistry, um, toxicology, um, medicine. And psychology has been one of the big sites where the law has been very skeptical of that kind of authority. And part of it is is because psychology is the one that kind of, it, its expertise is, you know, intuiting, you know, why people behave, whether they're responsible. It's very much, it's, it's a usurping of that legal decision-making process as opposed to kind of complementing it. And this is one instance, again, where the psychologists say, we can create this measure. And the judges are sort of like, thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then you have a, a couple of fascinating accounts of the, again, it's still the way in which mm, deception, I guess, broadly construed, uh, enters into a new kind of uh, legal or criminological or forensic discourse. And that has to do with the assimilation of psychotherapy and um, this new gadget, the lie detector, into the legal culture. So let's first deal with psychotherapy. We don't really yeah. think of uh, um, police officers or investigators using psychotherapy today. <laughs> I don't think. So how does it uh, how does it enter the legal culture in the 19 teens and 20s? Sure. So this is, again, this is the progressive era. And, you know, part of, uh, so oftentimes we hear uh, these days about how neuroscience is threatening to kind of challenge the law, challenge um, uh, legal decision-making. And, you know, we're going to have this colonization of the law by neuroscience. And to my mind, uh, I'm pretty skeptical of these claims because in a lot of ways that challenge has already happened. Part of what the progressives were about was arguing that people didn't um, commit crimes because of their own individual nature, but because of their socialization. This is the first, you know, it's because how they were raised, it was because of the social conditions of the city they lived in, et cetera, et cetera. And so where psychotherapy enters the, the law is precisely through these arenas around juvenile justice. So, you know, in, in the first, in, in the very beginning of the 20th century, we start have the creation of things like juvenile courts, the idea is that we're going to treat young offenders differently than um, adult offenders because A, um, they don't have the full responsibility because they're younger and B, um, they can be saved. You know, these teens can be saved. And so rather than kind of a more, um, and it's a, and it's a pushback against kind of a late 19th century criminal anthropology, which sort of said, you know, of the born criminal that we can sort of tell people are criminals because of, you know, their physiognomy. And so, and so then we can sort of think about, we can sort of diagnose what kinds of mental problems, whether, you know, and it's, you know, it's broadly clinical. So it could be everything from intelligence, which has like a slightly more eugenic flavor to it, to, you know, the, re- the conditions they were being reared under. Um, this is what explains, uh, this, could ex- this might explain their behavior. And if we can kind of intervene at an early age, they can be rehabilitated. So it's, so it's part of this rehabilitative uh, aspect of criminology, which I think, um, waxes and wanes over the history of the 20th century, and but one of the effects of this uh, of of this kind of more uh, psychotherapeutic approach is 
the discovery of a class of juvenile offender who is, again, almost exclusively female, um, who William Healy, who's the chief psychiatrist in Chicago at the juvenile court, um, calls the pathological liar. And this is a woman, unlike other juvenile delinquents, who seems to lie for no particularly good reason, right? So other juvenile delinquents will lie because they want to get out of trouble. You know, they'll want to, it's like, we can explain the rationality of their lies. Whilst the pathological liar, you know, she'll lie to incriminate herself. She'll, and, and this is sort of, I think, for him, I think a generally troubling encounter with these kinds of individuals. Um, and so this is the kind of, I think, a kind of concept that's kind of, you know, I think we oftentimes hear talk locally a little bit about pathological liars. But originally, I had this very clinical situation, and it really kind of came out of uh, the application of kind of this more therapeutic approach and this individual diagnostic approach um, to forms of criminology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then let's move on to the um, lie detector, uh, which is a, is a fascinating story. Go ahead. Sure. So, well, the, you know, the, so the lie detector kind of comes out of the very same institutional spaces uh, as some of the earlier stuff I was talking about. Um, this is something I'm trying to highlight. So at the very same time that Hugo Munsterberg was comparing competing brand names and his students were doing similar things, um, one of the subjects in these experiments was William Marston, the quote-unquote inventor of the lie detector. And I say that because there are several um, competing um, claimants to the invention of the lie detector. And as uh, my friend and colleague Jeff Bunn in his recent book on the lie detector has kind of shown, is in Berg of inventing the lie detector is part of the hype machine of the lie detector itself. And but I think we see a lot of continuity between kind of the lie detector and, um, and some of the earlier stuff I was talking about. Because again, I think a really important part of the lie detector is the stage magic of it. There's something very similar to the lie detector um, in, in interrogating the criminal with the electroscope being used to kind of distract and convince Paladino during the seance. You know, because oftentimes the lie detectors were not nearly as reliable as their as their publicity would indicate. And they were oftentimes, you know, they were not legally admissible. Um, they tried to get them illegally admitted in 1920, but much like in the case of the unwary purchaser, um, the judges say thanks, but no thanks. And instead, what they're there to do is kind of, they're really there to kind of elicit a confession. So it really is a hype, you know, it really is a kind of a hyper um, dramatic um, situation to kind of get you to kind of con- confess rather than actually use the, you know, the mechanical objectivity of the machine to actually measure and detect a, a, a lie. So I think we see really strong connections with kind of this longer history of, of, um, of kind of exposure. And so I think there's a really close kinship to kind of the staging of the lie detector and the staging of the kind of the debunking of, of the spiritualist. Uh, mm-hmm. How did the psychological community uh, respond to the lie detector? So I think it's largely seen as kind of a marginalized thing, you know. So at, this, at the time that this is going on, um, psychologists are trying to get respectability. Lie detector is the definition there of, of applied psychology. You know, applied psychology is not seen particularly well. Um, J. 
during this time period. And it really kind of flourishes in kind of these, you know, outside the university spaces. So, you know, it's, so it's, it's largely kind of pursued by these scientists, entrepreneurs, um, uh, people like Leonard Keeler and William Marston, who basically, you know, Keeler never got his PhD. He was kind of this tinker, gadgeteer out in California and then eventually in Chicago. Uh, Marston sort of leaves um, the university um, and kind of, kind of publicitist. He's probably most famous today as the inventor of Wonder Woman. So he enters the comics <laughs> in the 1940s. Uh, and, and again, my friend Jeff Bunn has done wonderful work on kind of um, on the lie detector and Wonder Woman. You know, this idea of, you know, these very powerful women and kind of Marston's kind of interesting version of 1930s feminism, but also Wonder Woman and her lasso of truth as a kind of lie detector. And so there's really strong continuity in terms of, of, of these things. And it really, the logic is really something that kind of lives and flourishes in terms of popular culture and police work more than um, the university and its kind of, its authority. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could conclude the interview by talking a little bit, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but about the science of deception today, where does where does psychology stand? Are we better able to understand why people are tricked and how gullible people are? Is there a gullibility index? Is there, uh, you know, is there a, de a, a, a deception metric or anything like that? Sure. Um, so I, I tend, you know, as a historian, I think like a lot of times I tend to have a very um, deflationary attitude towards the world. I think we tend to be pretty, you know, um, there's nothing new under the sun type thing. And so certainly in the past decade or so. There's been a, um, with the rise of new technologies um, for um, of brain scanning and, 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 and measurement, there's been a whole new whack load of technologies uh, and promises of kind of new forms of lie detection. That's one area. The other one has to do with um, Paul Ekman and kind of work on, on, on facial expression, which kind of goes back to Darwin. And... I'm pretty skeptical uh, 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 of these things, not because I doubt kind of the technological prowess of these things, but I think deception in itself, and as I show in the book, is, is actually a pretty malleable, ill-defined, polyvalent concept. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes our, our definitions of deception are, are kind of negations. And I think, in, I, I, so I'm pretty skeptical we'll ever kind of have it, uh, ever have kind of a, a lie detection machine of any sort simply because I don't think we have a particularly clear or great definition of deception itself. So for me, it's kind of a conceptual issue, philosophical issue. And it kind of, it's sort of, it kind of, psychology for a hundred years now has sort of promised to explain why we err, you know, why we have biases, you know, you know why, you know, it's a science of kind of our sub, our subjectivity, and it always kind of promises forms of guidance. But I think it's kind of this you know it's sort of this constant just over the horizon um, area of promise and anticipation, rather than I think that we're going to see um, completed in the near future. Mm -hmm. uh, should we be worried at all that um, advertisers are putting subliminal messages in their advertisements? <laughs> I think you know, at, 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 again, and this is this is the word that certainly goes back at least to the 1950s, if not yeah. earlier. I think this is actually it. But I think um, the hype around these things is you know, is as seductive as the thing itself. 
Yeah, I mean, that was my impression of the. I, I've read a little bit about the subliminal advertising, and what they determined is it didn't work. So they didn't need the government to tell them it didn't work. It just didn't work. I mean, and also, you know, the other thing about advertising is, is if you put an attractive woman next to it, people are more likely to buy it. And everybody knows that. You don't need, there's nothing subliminal about it. You know, things like that are just tried and true. <laughs> so you don't need to appeal to any sort of subconscious or anything like that. So, Michael, thanks so much for being on the show today. We've been talking with Michael Pettit about his book, The Science of Deception, Psychology and Commerce in America. Michael, we have a traditional final question on new books in history, and it is, what are you working on now? Sure. I, I, I'm working on a, on, a, on a bunch of projects. So, so one of my abiding contemporary concerns is the history of psychology subjects, kind of a history of psychology from below. And, you know, the 20th century, we have all kinds of incredible data of, you know, you know people's responses to psychological tests, responses to surveys, um, letters written to psychological experts. And so part of what I'm trying to do these days is really think about, you know, how people came to live psychological lives. And, you know, we have, that's been a, a very dominant theme in the history of psychology, but it tends to be very top down below. We kind of assume that people adopt um, the concepts that are popular at the time. And, and so a lot of my work these days kind of looks at that. And like a lot of other people, I'm also in, in, in new forms of kind of digital history. And so I'm playing with a lot of things with maps and social networks mm-hmm. and thinking about ways in which we can kind of, um, return to ask more kind of big history, um, social structure type questions as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Michael, all that sounds fascinating, and I hope you can be on the show again. Again, we've been talking with Michael Pettit about his book, The Science of Deception, Psychology, and Commerce in America. Uh, first, let me say, Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And second, let me say that I'm Marshall Poe, and I'm the host of New Books in History, and I hope that all the listeners to this podcast have a great week. 